Hello there. Thank you for listening to JLL's Perspectives podcast, episode three. This is, we're absolutely thrilled at the response to our podcast so far, and we've got no doubt this will provide equally great insights. We're covering the logistics of moving essential goods from suppliers to supermarket or store shelves through the lens of a consumer good that has gripped the world's attention during the COVID-19 pandemic, toilet paper. Uh, to address the challenges and the opportunities, I've got Amy Bentley, who's General Manager of Supply Chain Solutions in Australia and New Zealand and in Global Logistics for Toll Group, and Jamie Guerra, who is Head of Industrial and Logistics for Australia at JLL. Amy, without wanting to trivialise the massive operation that goes into getting goods to where they need to be, could you just summarise for us why we can't get our hands on toilet paper? Uh, and in some, well, we couldn't, and in some places still can't, though I think it, se it seems to be picking up just slightly. Yeah, look, the ultimate question uh, that everybody seems to be asking, I think it's fascinating. Toll's in a really good place to be able to answer this question because we actually work pretty closely with Kimberley Clark and manage a lot of their warehouse operations nationally and we also look up to Coles Distribution Centre in Victoria. So the biggest reason is it's, it's really difficult to ramp up manufacturing, you know, at the best of times um, because you'll depend upon, you know, raw materials and things like that. So... What we're saying is it's in warehouses. It's actually getting distributed out, you know, in, in much greater quantities than it normally would be. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more trucks on the road with toilet paper. But what we're then saying at the other side is um, just people are now so concerned about not having toilet paper. Even if they didn't want to panic buy, they are because it's not there, you know, within a short space of time. Because toilet paper is such a big bulky product you know if you can imagine you can only fit a certain amount of toilet paper on a pallet um, as compared to something like you know cans of tomato where you can fit a lot more on a single pallet so if you imagine let's say you would typically hold 200 pallets of toilet paper now you might be holding in a warehouse you know a thousand pallets of toilet paper and they have to go somewhere but you can only hold that amount for a certain period of time so the entire chain just becomes incrementally higher. So trucks from manufacturer into, into the distribution centre more frequently and then that from the distribution centre into supermarkets or small independent retailers, um, an incremental amount of traffic because you're trying to match that storage capability in the middle. Um, and, you know, the good thing is we, we have a number of additional trucks available because we're seeing other retail activity uh, disappear. So we've at least got the capacity to be able to do it. How many more trucks are we talking about? How much more movement um, are we talking about? If it, yeah, if it's possible, maybe give us a picture in numbers. I mean, you're talking about almost a quadrupling of a lot of that activity. Yeah, Beck, I might I might add some to that because look, having spoken to a couple of the, the retailers that we cross paths with, normally in a Christmas event, you know, retailers gear up and supermarkets gear up because they know what happens. So that means extra warehouse space and and allowing for it. You know, this is this is a I guess a, a, an event which is from a the consumer behavioural point of view caught people off guard. So trying to scramble to deal with it um, is the real challenge, not just from a manufacturing perspective, but from a logistics perspective and you know, the, the, the feedback in sales year on year being up 20, 30, 40%.
Now that's across the whole packaging. So you can imagine uh, items like toilet paper, flour, rice, um, sanitizers, those, those products that are gone, you know, there's been a massive ramp up. So the, the actual manufacturing, the logistics, the warehousing, the deliverables are where the challenge comes because no one forecasts. So planning it is a, is a problem, but that impact is flowing across demand for short-term accommodation um, for 3PLs and, and also uh, supply chain warehouses of the, of the retailers. So Jamie, then, you know, what's the role of, of the warehouses here and how have they uh, been able to come in um, and, uh, and, and accommodate this huge spike in demand? We've heard of pop-up distribution centres. Yeah, well, look, I think the other part of it is we are seeing obviously come-offs in lots of other areas of retail. So, you know, in the normal course, leases are longer term, they're planned out and you've sort of got ability to map out and plan out supply chain and logistics. And what we're seeing is very rapid changes, both up and down in consumer behaviour and then what flows from it. Um, but I think in the, um, in the immediate term, you know, some of the requirements are short term because we don't know how long this will go for. So we, we're seeing requests where, you know, I guess the agent becomes a lot more uh, influential in terms of talking to our clients and where there may be a retailer that's suffering, there may be a demand that fills it. But, but that needs to have some flexibility around leasing ability to grow up and down. You know, we had a recent example where one of the um, fast food um, operators needed some cold store. And, and we reached out across the network and because of some of the come off in fish exports and other areas, we were able to identify um, short-term requirements in spaces that normally wouldn't be available. Is that what you've been seeing, Amy? Yeah, look, it's a good point. I mean, because we're a 3PL, we often have capacity that's available in our network. So, you know, we might have 4,000 pallets worth of space somewhere. We would absolutely use that for overflow of, let's say, toilet paper as an example, um, before we went out to market for anything else. So, we, I mean, we've got a high profile in, some, in things like specialty retail, and a lot of those businesses are not operating at present. So we've got the ability to even use those warehouses uh, in the interim whilst they are operating. A bit of that depends on the supply chain and you know, some of those who have got um, greater reliance on 3PO and externals versus some of them that do it internally and control it. You know, what we are seeing is some, some questions from a supply chain perspective, particularly the manufacturing or the elements that rely on China and imports. And, and mm -hmm. so just the, the raw product, but, but the elements that go to it, the packaging and other parts. And, and so, you know, we've we've gone through, I guess, a period of time where efficiency and cost um, cost driven outcomes have led to offshoring. You know, I think questions are now being asked about manufacturing and what what's critical. What do we do onshore? What's the balance? But the heart that is unpacking that is not just the one item; it's the all the elements that come with it that we tend to rely a lot on. Jamie, yeah, I think that's a really um, valid point, and you know, already there's discussions around. What do we do in the future as far as supply chain resilience type questions are concerned, you know, to ensure that, you know, we have protection for our local communities, particularly on critical items. So healthcare and some of those matters you can see particularly, right? The the face mask and those other things that we now see, hand sanitizers, medication. So I'm interested in both of your assessments on the um, ability for the supply chain and logistics network and the warehouse network to respond to dramatic shifts. Supply chains are typically not very quick to change, um, but there's been a, a necessity here that has driven a substantial amount of adaptation really quickly. And we, I, I'm sure Jamie would be saying this as well, 
in that, you know, the quick shift by a lot of businesses to an online operating platform to deal with the whole social distancing aspect or the shutdown of their business, you know, in, in the way that they would typically operate, um, you know, and, and, you know, the entire supply chain has to quickly navigate to being able to contend with that because you've now got uh, a lot more people required within the distribution side of it to be able to execute those online deliveries. Um, but also too, there's it's a different way of working to a normal distribution model. So setting up a new channel quickly is, um, it, I think, been really fascinating to see. Yeah, and so there's a couple of points to that for me, Beck. I guess from a manufacturing perspective, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of that go offshore. You know, we've seen so much of that um, skill set and employee base go. That's the challenge in terms of when a lot, a lot of it's gone and you lose that, that, that ability to do it. The second part that Amy talked about um, was around the supply chain and, and we are seeing a lot more movement towards, um, you know, the, the e-commerce online. Um, you know, interestingly, Australia is still well behind uh, behaviour in China and America, you know, and the, the JLL research which sort of pegs us at probably, while we're rapidly growing, we're still just over 9% of our, of our retail spend, whereas, you know, almost getting up towards 30, America's um, uh, well above us. And I think we're starting to see that behaviour um, evolve and grow. Now, this is likely to fast track it. Yeah, and I'd just add one other thing to this topic, and that is that um, one of the really pleasing things that we've seen is the number of the constraints that we would typically operate under in a logistics context. So, for example, curfews into stores. Um, the, the, the governments really, I think, very quickly, rapidly moved to disband a lot of those things in the current circumstances. But as a, as a you know, global business, we see some huge opportunities in what comes after that in the context of, you know, there's been some real challenges around being able to maintain environmentally friendly transport networks, um, cost-effective delivery solutions, et cetera, under the current way things are structured. So this opens up a whole new opportunity to do things really differently, um, be able to support businesses and minimise congestion on the roads uh, from an environmental perspective. So I I'm excited about that. So say after uh, normality has resumed, we've got the year of government, um, you know, you can present to them a sort of a wish list. What will be on that wish list? Um, well, I think there'd be a few, uh, you know, one would be what I've just mentioned, which is how do we effectively deliver into businesses? And one of the things that um, a number of people in our logistics space have been talking about for a long time is can we do more deliveries at night, as an example? Um, because that means we have trucks on the road uh, when there's less people commuting uh, and that way there's less environmental impact. Um, we also get there quicker, which means we use less fuel, um, so therefore there's better cost outcome. Um, you know, I'd like to think that uh, with some of the constraints that have um, been existing around our road network, uh, that some of those will be challenged as well. So, for example, can we use B-doubles on a, on a road now, um, which previously we haven't been allowed to, as an example. So, you know, I think there's really good opportunity here to take away some of the sacred cows. Jamie, how do you think industrial property capacity can be or capabilities can be optimised along with uh, perhaps some different transport modes to cope with future demand and future spikes in demand. Yeah, and look, I think I think we saw a bit of this coming out of post GFC, where you know as the recovery came in, you know those typical long term leases 
hard areas. Um, you know, we've seen it in office space with um, the flexible work environment and, and the equivalent in industrial having a bit more flexibility within leases and we're starting to see some of that play out. I mean, typically it's under a sublease arrangement and I talked a bit about the cold store example. You know, I think we're going to have to see greater flex and greater ability to, you know, the point that Amy made, there are some businesses that are going to take less space and some that will take more. And in, in a tolls case, you know, that's what they do. They can upscale and down for their clients. But I think as landlords, the challenge is going to be that's not the typical norm because the way that the, um, the finance are structured and, and everything else around valuation and shareholder value is around leases and return and, and uh, capital values as they relate. So you know, there's going to need to be a, a, a bit of a shift um, around how, um, how the, the, the landlord works with various tenants. You know, and I guess as agents, we play a big role in, the, in actually bringing that together and communicating across the board. So what might um, a more sort of flexible lease look like? Yeah, well, I guess, I, I guess it's typically floor space. So, you know, around having some ability to upscale or downscale scale sizes and walls. And that, you know, that's not always um, as easy to do, given that you've got businesses together. Um, sharing areas, sharing yards, uh, but we, we've seen we've seen a bit more of that. I guess you know the the, the bigger groups um, who hold multiple estates are certainly prepared to be much more accommodating and being very client focused around a group and saying, well, hey, you might have outgrown that. We've got a facility elsewhere we can put you into, and because we have the same you know with the same landlord, we've got flexibility around estates. So you know that, that goes back to that. that that institutionalisation of um, of the market and and greater flexibility across multiple markets with owners in that industrial space. We are going to see a number of businesses not survive um, this current situation, um, but also the flip side is we're going to see a lot of new startups or entrepreneurial businesses trying to do something really different off the back of you know this kind of revolutionary opportunity. So I agree that our industrial, um, you know, facilities need to be a lot more flexible, and the and the structure and construct around those as well. Because what we might see is a lot of those smaller businesses don't have the the volume to be uh, warranting going to a three PL, but they might want to band together and say, look, four different types of businesses will take on a property together, so they've got you know capacity to grow. Um, but also so that they can leverage the fixed cost together. Um, you know, and they might say, I just want that for four weeks because I don't. I just want to lease week to week because I don't really know whether my business is going to take off or not. Um, so I do think there is going to have to be an adjustment on, on how we deal with all things relating to being able to support distribution and logistics uh, in Australia in the coming 12 to 18 months. I'm interested to know about the role of technology. Um, how reliant has the industrial property network and the logistics network been on technology to to respond to, to current challenges? And um, does it need to be better? In some cases, a number of businesses are heavily reliant on automation. So if you have automation associated with e-commerce platforms, you will be going gangbusters. Um, and, you know, that's hugely advantageous to have an you know, automation solution in an online um, situation right now. Uh, but you only have to look to some of our major supermarkets and you know, they've 
they've had to actually expand beyond that already just because of the sheer volume because ultimately automation still has a, a throughput threshold uh, so you can only do so much in 24 hours across automation. Jamie, I understand that uh, once upon a time, supermarkets themselves used to have warehouses um, at the back um, where they, you know, where they used to store a lot of their stock, and that's no longer the case. Um, is that right? Can you clear some of that up for me? I understand maybe technology was a driver or the cost of space. Look, I think, yeah, I think it's been a while since that that was the case. I mean, I, but I think we talked before about you know the way manufacturing worked and the just in time and the reliance on. Um, uh, some of the cheaper manufacturing abilities offshore. So, you know, we, we saw greater drive for efficiencies and return on investment that that those products were um, were housed elsewhere. One of the big things in supply chain is safety stock and how much you should hold and where you should hold it. I think we're going to see a shift to probably holding a bit more of things um, and probably holding a bit more of those sort of critical products centrally somewhere in, in Australia. Uh, but also, too, I think we're probably going to see a, a real shift to decentralisation. That, that's my opinion, um, which is, you know, we've typically looked to consolidate, you know, major distribution centres in, in certain locations. Um, we'll probably see a larger push into how do you hold more in, in a particular location that's closer to the customer base. Thank you very much for your um, for the conversation, Jamie and Amy, and your insights, and um, hope to catch up with you sometime again in the not-too-distant future. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Amy.